You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. Can I welcome all of you back to this, uh, the second half of our judgment call? I'm going to remind you of the question, what connects us most or least? And to open this session, we have Jude Kelly, uh, who is uh, one of our uh, cultural gurus in Britain. She runs the South Bank Centre, and uh, no one better to speak to the subject of culture. Jude. Thank you. What illustrious company I'm competing with. These are the Chauvet Caves in southern France. And a few years ago, some explorers found them. And Werner Herzog made a film called Cave of Forgotten Dreams. You probably are familiar with this. It's an image throughout the whole caves of lions and rhinoceroses and deer, horses and humans. And they were painted 32,000 years ago approximately. They were painted by the last Ice Age humans, Cro-Magnum artists. And when those caves were opened and found, the explorers found themselves crying. And they said, this is the moment when we in the present are truly connected up with humans from the past. Because in realising that those humans 32,000 years ago were not just drawing something that they saw in front of them, but actually using dyes, using the, the flow of the, the brushes that they'd made, trying to find ways of not just capturing and illustrating, but expressing what they felt about things that they loved, their animals and their own people. You knew then that actually this was one of the defining ideas about what is a human. A human needs to find a way of expressing who they are individually and collectively and they need to find a way of communicating what that feeling is to other humans. A friend of mine said that this is a way that we hold a mirror up to ourselves and then throw a window open so that other people can look at us and see us for who we are. And even though I absolutely believe that there is every reason why humans must find through law, through politics, through preservation of their planet, through the way of operating entrepreneurially, they must find so many ways of understanding how to build a civilization and then sustaining it. First, you must understand what being a human is and what being a human is for another person. And this is fundamentally what I, I want to talk about, which is what connects us most, which is the question. And I would say that culture connects us most because it defines for us when we talk to another human being whether they understand what we are. Do you know what I feel? Are you a human? Now, you might think that I was going to use culture as meaning the arts, and you'll excuse me if I don't, although of course I mean the arts too. But what I mean by culture 
is this way that we use to express ourselves in all sorts of ways that I suppose you could say, at some level, aren't useful. It's a strange thing to say about culture. We need to eat, but we don't actually need to prepare food and lay it out decoratively, but we love to. We need to grow things, but we don't actually need to cultivate them in patterns. We don't need to make them look beautiful. We don't need to cut them and put them into a vase, which we have shaped, not just so that it holds the water, but so that the shape itself is beautiful to us. We don't need to do that. And we didn't need to at the very earliest moment when we needed to strike a flint or hold a weapon. We didn't need to carve into that weapon emblems that were not only maybe religious symbols, but were actually things that physically we could explore with our fingers and enjoy. And aesthetically we could say, actually, that's attractive. We didn't need to do this, but seemingly as humans, we have to do it. And when we see another human doing something similar, that's the beginning of empathy and identification, which is what we need in order to build all the other things that we want to preserve to maintain that connectivity. I believe that humans really need to recognise our own humanity. We need to fall in love with our own species daily. Not just our immediate family, but the idea of the human. That's how we find the reason to preserve the laws and search for equality. And so all the other things, political, social, legal, entrepreneurial structures, they're absolutely necessary for building a civilised and civilising life. But they're not the essential touchstone that begins the connectivity. That is culture. When we recognise in each other this thing that another person is doing, that is like what we do, but may be different, I, I understand my divinity, you understand your divinity, but look, we both make hymns of praise, we both dance, we both paint, we make rituals. That curiosity about the other and the similarity between us is how we start exchanging and exploring cultures, which of course produces its own version of the Silk Route, would be one example, where cultures meld and exchange and barter and share and, and recognise that we are born to belong to each other because we are all humans. And so this idea of the expressive arts, the decoration, the rituals, the, the ways of exploring divinity, jokes, where would humans be without jokes and how many animals have you ever seen laughing? Well, sport, sport, why do people play sport? Some of you might ask that question on a daily basis, but actually <laughs> the, the beauty, the magnificence, the prowess, the explosion, or the exhilaration, watching the human do this, and something which connects all over the planet. Find me something called a football, and I'll find you millions of people who can connect through it. Well, they can't speak the same language, they don't necessarily have the same laws of behaviour, but they know they want to share that idea of kicking something. It's far better to play football than kick anything else. So, this idea of what connects us beyond the basics, the desire to express ourselves. And I want to just give you a few examples before I finish of why I think this idea of connecting us most lies with culture. You look at the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. You look at a, a, a society that has apparently nowhere to turn to know how do you begin rebuilding. Which do you begin first? Architecture, rule of law, finding water, what do you do? And the US ambassador visiting 
said when she saw a small child walking through the rubble singing to keep her hopes up, she thought, well, that's the beginning of optimism. We begin there. When I went to Iran to look at some of the struggles that are there to allow people with mental illness to be allowed to be considered to be human, I went to visit schools called the Right to Life. And what they were using to demonstrate to the powers that be that people have a right to actually stay alive if they are mentally challenged was because they could make art. They could see a flower, they could decorate, they could make a pattern. They understood this thing that connects us all. When we had the Kersler exhibition at the South Bank Centre and I talked to parents whose children had been killed, who were curating the exhibition of prisoners, when they understood that a prisoner could be a murderer but could also be somebody who could express their own loneliness and isolation in a piece of work, they forgave them. Not because they had changed their mind about their own child, but because they understood this could also be their child. And these countless examples of how humanity makes sense of itself to itself, Charlie Chaplin, the world over, because he can make us laugh and we all know what it looks like to make a fool of ourselves physically. Medea, a taunting and haunting idea that if you choose to use power to marry somebody and then abandon them powerless, this whole idea of, of rights over children, everything that will come to bear if you don't attend to respect between people, long before Freud, long before Jung, it was that Greek play that gives us the warning about what respect needs to do when it's got power in its hands. And then finally, the dreadful image of the Iraqi museum curators as they cried their eyes out at a project I was chairing with Interpol about theft of heritage when they said, we are the cradle of civilization and now the bulldozers have come in the middle of the night in the deserts with armed gunmen and they have dug up our temples and people will never know who we were as people. Help us save those things. Let us tell you that we connect to you and we connect to you through our culture. And I suppose finally the slave song. How would we ever know what it was like to yearn for the human rights that Shami talked about? if we didn't hear people singing through the songs of slavery, that finally they had to be free. And the final thing I would say, since it was E.M. Foster who said, only connect, that those of you who saw the elephant in London a few years ago, the magnificent, extraordinary, amazing puppet creature, no technology to speak of except wonderful human invention, an elephant and a little girl walking through the streets of London, two million people came to see it, just to wonder, because it connects us. Thank you. We would now like to call uh, Mark Henderson from the Wellcome Trust to talk about scientific endeavour. Um, Mark is a senior journalist, the science editor at the Times, before he was at the Wellcome Trust. The floor is yours, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, what a, a tough one to, to, to follow. Uh, but I think if anything can follow culture as the binding force that connects us, it is science and scientific uh, endeavour. Um, I'd like to start by thinking uh, 
back 150, 200 years. And uh, here in Aldborough, we would have been in a place where most of the locals would never even have gone as far away as Ipswich. They would have expected to live their entire lives here, to marry here, to have children here. We now live, of course, in a completely transformed world where uh, we can travel wherever we want, we can marry uh, 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 and, and breed with whoever we want. We are global citizens uh, connected uh, because, I think ultimately, of the uh, human impetus to gather, to exchange ideas, uh, to connect with one another. And science is, I think, one of the chief tools, if not the chief tool, uh, that enables that level of connectedness. Uh, there's, of course, first of all, uh, the transport revolution of the 19th century uh, that brought us together, uh, founded on, on scientific principles, uh, engineering, the internal combustion engine. Uh, we now, of course, are also connected uh, through information technology. Again, it will be not, not news to you uh, that the World Wide Web was developed out of CERN as a tool for scientists to do their jobs better. Uh, that then extended uh, to everything we do now. Uh, wireless technology uh, is the result of uh, Maxwell's equations formulated back in the 19th century. Science is the enabler uh, of great, uh, uh, great connectedness and gregariousness, something that I think uh, is, 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 is a pivotal part of what it means uh, to be human. But it uh, connects us at a much deeper level than that too. Uh, if you look inside our genomes, as it's now possible to do, you know that we are 99.9% .9 the same, every single one of us. And I think that actually is a profoundly important insight that supports what Shami was telling us about earlier in terms of human rights. Uh, if you look more widely than that, you can look at evolution, the single best idea that anybody has had, uh, which shows how we are not just connected to ourselves, but to every other living creature on the planet stretching back four billion years. Uh, if you want to go further than that, we were, of course, we, we, we share uh, a commonality with everything in the universe growing out of the Big Bang 12 and a half billion years ago. We can look back at that uh, through science. Um, we're also connected uh, through our biological vulnerability. Uh, it's 10 years now since the SARS epidemic swept through uh, Southeast Asia and, and, and Canada. Uh, if one of us in this room uh, had SARS, we would soon all know how connected we are. Um, but it also, of course, uh, science as well as telling us about threats such as SARS, it tells us how we can start to overcome uh, those threats. Uh, vaccination, antibiotics, which again, very much in the news at the moment. We're celebrating the 200th anniversary of John Snow, the uh, founder of epidemiology uh, at present. Um, and an interesting statistic here is that there are 150 people approximately in this room. Um, at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, 23 of us would not be here because we would have died uh, before we were one. Uh, the connectedness uh, that that uh, expansion uh, in longevity that science has promoted uh, allows is really quite something uh, to behold. But I don't want to dwell too much actually on the products of science that I've described uh, just now because actually science connects us uh, in a more intimate and fundamental way even than that. And that is, I think, uh, a concept that was brilliantly encapsulated by Carl Sagan 
when he pointed out that science uh, is much more than a body of knowledge. Uh, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of satisfying what I think is ultimately one of the things that most makes us human, and that's our desire to be curious, our curiosity, our desire to ask questions, our desire to know. Uh, and there is no better way that humanity has yet come up with of interrogating these questions, of satisfying curiosity, uh, than science. It's a method, uh, an approach to knowledge, uh, a thing that people do. And what is incredible about it, its greatest strength, uh, is it acknowledges at its heart something else that connects us, that we are people, that we are all prone to confirmation bias. We, uh, we tend, as Lucy Preble told us yesterday, to attend to the information that supports what we already think we think. Uh, and to discard everything else. Science is an organized system of trying to do away with that, trying to overcome that uh, uh, incredible uh, barrier uh, to knowledge. Uh, and it allows us, albeit imperfectly, to overcome uh, confirmation bias, uh, to overcome, uh, to, in a sense, our human failings uh, through testing ideas against evidence fairly through bringing in uh, uh, methods such as controls and randomization uh, that allow us to be reasonably certain uh, that what we think we know is actually so. Uh, it requires us to connect. It requires us to publish uh, everything that we uh, find out so that it can, we invite challenge, we invite other people uh, to replicate. Connectedness is at the heart of science. Um, and most importantly of all, it's provisional. Everything that we learn through science can be improved upon. Uh, Newton was uh, a brilliant man who established some great truths about the universe. Einstein improved on that, and we are, as we speak, improving on Einstein's knowledge. Douglas spoke about the self-correcting nature of politics, which I agree with to a point. But science is self-correcting because of this in a way that politics can never really even properly aspire uh, to be. Um, and it is uh, an approach, science, a unique uh, approach that allows us uh, to ask and answer uh, the greatest questions uh, that face us. Uh, we can explore the first microseconds uh, of existence. We can understand evolution and our connectedness to uh, the natural world around us. Uh, we can understand climate change and potentially uh, develop some of the tools with which we might actually overcome that enormous challenge uh, to our very uh, existence. Um, there is much more that politics could do to draw on the tools of science uh, to create uh, better policy. Um, it isn't just science the source of a body uh, of exceptionally useful uh, and reliable knowledge, uh, much of which explains the way uh, in which we are all connected uh, to one another. It is uh, a tool that enables uh, the most human of qualities, gregariousness, connectedness, an ability to exchange ideas, to exchange thoughts, to learn from one another. Uh, and it is a tool for satisfying our curiosity. Uh, there's nothing that connects us, uh, in my view, uh, more than that. Jude, I think, spoke movingly and correctly uh, of culture as a unifying force uh, among humans. Well, I would argue that science uh, is humanity's greatest single cultural achievement, uh, and thus uh, the force that connects us more than any other. Thank you very much.
And uh, now we call on Shai Rashef, uh, who is the founder of the University of the People, who's come to see us from the United States. And uh, welcome, Shai. He's going to speak about education as a force uh, that connects us. I got a prize already. Someone lost it? <laughs> is it a gift or...? <laughs> Thanks. Shai. Okay? Yeah. If you educate one person, you can change a life. But if you educate many, you can change the world. Education is what connects us most. Because education is the great equalizer. And this is very true, and especially true, for higher education. Because educated people have a lot in common worldwide. They've invested in their career. They have a lot to lose. They see a bright future in front of them. But not only that. When you educate a person, you don't only affect his or her life. You affect the life of their families, their communities, their countries, and ultimately, the world. However, while education can be the best connector of all, for millions and millions of people around the world, education, and especially higher education, is nothing but a dream, for many reasons. For some, it is for financial reasons, for many. You know the situation here as well. Education is getting just too expensive. Universities are unaffordable for many. Many others do not find seats in the, in the existing universities. They take a placement exam, either they're in or they're out. If they're out, if they're out, it doesn't mean that they're not qualified for higher education. It just means that there is no room for them. For many others, it's cultural reasons. Women in Africa, in many countries, are, tend to be deprived from higher education, and there are a lot of personal reasons for not attending universities. UNESCO stated that in 2025, assuming that the growth of the world population will continue as it is right now, and the opening of new universities will continue as it is right now, 100 million students will not have seats in the existing universities. Again, 100 million students will not have seats in the existing universities. For those millions and millions of people, we started University of the People, the first ever non-profit, tuition-free, degree-granting online university that connects people from all over the world, that aims at bringing democracy to higher education, to enable every single person on earth the right to try higher education if they are qualified for it. In order to be tuition free, we use everything that is free on the net. Open source technology, technology that was produced for everyone to use for free. Open educational resources, content that professors put on the net for the rest of the world to use for free, and the new internet culture of sharing, teaching, and learning from each other for free. Actually, we call it volunteers. So combining all these elements 
together with our pedagogy of peer-to-peer -peer learning and operating in multiple places, leaning heavily on volunteers, we were able to cut down almost the entire cost of higher education. All we ask our students to pay is to cover the cost of exams, $100 each, if they have it. If not, we offer scholarships. So we, we only offer business administration and computer science because these two degrees are not only the most in demand worldwide, are the likeliest to help people find a job, but also these degrees are international. When you study computer science or business administration in any country in the world, you basically study the same material, the same curriculum, so you are basically connected to the entire world. We started only three years ago, and a few facts. We have accepted so far, in the last three years, 1,500 students. 95% of them, by the way, say that they would recommend us to their friends as a good place to study, which probably means that we're doing something right. They are coming from 136 countries, from the United States to the United Arab Emirates, from Indonesia to Micronesia, from South Sudan to Afghanistan, every corner of the universe. And for these 1,500 students, we have 3,000 volunteering professors. Actually, we have a ratio of two professors for every student, quite common in every university, right? We are very proud of it. Actually, we are not using most of them. We can't use so many professors. But these professors and these volunteers are coming from the best universities. Our, pro our president council consists of the vice chancellor of Oxford, the president of NYU, the rector of the Academy of Paris and others. Our provost is from Columbia University. Our deans are from NYU. We are partners with Yale Law School for Research. With NYU, where our best students after a year with us can be accepted to NYU, fully paid by NYU. And we are partners and, and associated with and allied with uh, HP, Intel, um, Google, Clinton Global Initiative, UN, UNESCO, Ashoka, and others. We are most proud to have over one million supporters on Facebook. We are connecting the world. People support us from all over the world. We are actually the second largest university on Facebook in the world after Harvard. We are number two. I guess we should try harder. But uh, we are very proud of, of the support. But what is more important is that we actually connect the world. Every time a student takes a class and they study for BA 40 courses, every time they take a class, they are being put together with 20 to 30 students from 20 to 30 different countries. 40 times in a row we mix them with new students from new countries. By the time they graduate, they literally met people from the entire world, sometimes from hostile countries. And just stop for a second and picture. Picture what happened when students from Israel, every time he takes a class, meet a different Palestinian. Picture what happened when every time a student from Indonesia take, from India takes a class, she meets a different Pakistanian, and they can go on and on. I want you to stop for a second and picture what will happen when we have a million students. 
We open our students' mind. We actually make the world closer to them, develop a shift in attitude, connect them to the entire globe. We believe that, we, that through higher education, we are making peace in the world a bit closer. We make our world a bit more connected. Thank you. racing towards lunch, but before lunch we're going to vote, and before that we're going to ask a number of witnesses to come forward, but first of all we'd like to give the stand to Peter Bale from CNN, who's proposed that it's actually the mass media that connect us most. Uh, but after that, we also have pleading for... We, the judges, had a very difficult task in decide, deciding who should be given the open mic witness number seven slot. And we decided to give it to Peter Bale, um, uh, who's arguing for mass media. But a number of other contenders came forward. So I'd like you to, on your paper, if you have it in front of you, to write in the none of the above slots the following list. Each of these speakers will be given one minute, absolutely maximum, to make the argument for why their uh, subject matter is, in fact, the most connecting of all. And so I will give that one minute slot to the following. To Henry Chevalier Guild, who says food is what connects us. I'm going to give it for a minute to Harvey Goldsmith, who says it's music that connects us. I'm going to give it to, I think it's Kate uh, Maltby, who said that it was loneliness that connects us. I'm going to give it to Peter York, who says it's fashion that connects us. And there was somebody who said it was love that connects us but she's feeling too shy to make the argument. Anyway, so make that list. I will call upon, uh, upon the speakers after we've heard from uh, Peter Bale. Five minutes, Peter. Good morning. Thank you very much. I absolutely was not going to do this. No one is surprised more than I am to see me here. Uh, but after hearing one of my heroes, Shami Chakrabarti, talk, I thought, why not? Oh, Julia's given us this venue to share and get together and share information, that I'm going to decide to put myself out there. I'm not an academic. I'm not a media personality. I'm a failed math. I'm struggling to stay current, struggling to be better, to think more, to care more, and to do more. And this is the kind of venue that really appeals to me in that regard. I get to hear Hannah Rothschild talking about her art. I hear an absolutely flabbergasting presentation from Simon Sharma and I hear Douglas Carswell make the Tories seem absolutely politically acceptable and human. <laughs> so I'm going to argue, argue about what connects us most. And of course, what connects us most is love. And we have the professor of love, Simon May, here. But what connects us most, in my view, is knowledge of the present. And knowledge of the present is news. So when I talk about mass media, what I'm really talking about is the mass news media. So it's self-serving. I'm in the mass, the mass news media. I'm there for a choice. I've been in it since I was about 12, which is why I'm not an academic and why I'm a failed polymath. And I want to salute and argue that it's the people who bring us that news, the people who bear witness in the field, who bring all of these elements together, whether it's Mark's old job as a science correspondent, whether it's the political correspondent Steve Richards who connects it, whether it's the arts correspondents who bring us the South Bank beauty 
and the power of everything we've seen today. The people who write about civil rights. Yes, you need Shami, but you need someone to communicate Shami's message to us all, to be the intermediary. Even with the internet, where, we, where, we can, where we're all disintermediated, and nobody is more disintermediated than the media, we still like a little bit of curation and a little bit of translation. So I want to celebrate the watchers and those who bear witness. And I don't mean that in a religious sense, although I might get a bit sort of teary-eyed and religious in a minute. And I want to tell you a little bit of a story about Sarajevo. And if you go to Sarajevo now, and if you go to, went to Sarajevo in the mid-90s when I used to go there, and you'd go through the tunnel, you wouldn't go through the tunnel, you'd come to the airport, you'd see where the tunnel that the, that the Bosnians built across the airport popped up. And it was right next door to a thing called Oslobogenia, the Oslobogenia newspaper. George Soros paid for that newspaper to publish throughout the Bosnian Civil War. Why? Because it's the definition of civil society, is access to knowledge of the present, to news. When you now drive from Oslo, Virginia, into, into downtown Sarajevo, you go up Kurt Schork Street. It's named after a friend of mine, Kurt Schork, who worked with me at Reuters, uh, who I was responsible many times for putting into the field and responsible for giving love to in the field, for, for being at the centre and caring about his safety, his welfare, uh, and all of those around him to make sure that he was safe. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to go and bear witness, to be the person in the field. It also takes great courage of people and institutions to put people in those places and make sure that they're safe, make sure that they have flat jackets, make sure that they're medevaced out when they come. And I want to tell you a little bit of a story about Kurt. Kurt was one of the few journalists, certainly the only international journalist, who stayed in Sarajevo throughout the conflict. The rest of us zipped in and zipped out. I went in and replaced Kurt very briefly during the Dayton Peace Talks. Had a brilliant time when I was able to talk about it, but I never got shot at. I never had to wake up to mortar shells coming down on the Reuters house there. Kurt was there through the lot, through absolutely everything. And the Bosnians incredibly appreciated it. He was independent, but he of course wrote from the side, the side that was receiving the attacks on the markets. And he went through them himself. Kurt then went to a, um, cover a story in Sierra Leone. Uh, Amanata Fauna was talking about Sierra Leone. Does anybody really remember the Sierra Leone uh, uh, civil war? It was almost irrelevant. Kurt and a group of colleagues were driving up the road in a Land Rover when they were ambushed. Kurt was shot in the face and died immediately. A young AP <laughs> photographer was killed in the same incident. Two other friends of mine rolled out of the Land Rover, used their dangerous reporting skills, hid in the jungle, for many hours, walked back to, um, to town and reported on the death of one of the great war correspondents of our age. Since then, we've had people like Marie Colvin killed this year, or late last year, in Homs. We've had Tim Hetherington, the creator of probably one of the greatest pieces of documentary reportage, Restrepo, uh, in the last year. And I think that's, I'm just adding that in there for Jess Stream from yesterday. Um, and when you see, you saw the outpouring of, of Marie, about Marie Colvin's death, it really matters that people are there. It matters for the mass media. Who is going to put these people in the place without them? Without the watchers, the observers, and the explainers, we've got no way of communicating effectively to the masses. There is a reason we call this the mass media. And I was thinking about this yesterday with um, David Aronovich's piece on the brain. 
the difficulty there is, what is you know, how do those medics get their opinions across? How does the media become better? How do we become more like Mark Henderson and more intelligent in the way we report? All of these, these things are incredibly important that we get better, that we realize we've failed, and that we're on a constant path of improvement. And I was reminded of this about this with, with Douglas Carswell's comments and also Steve Richards last night. There's an old line about politicians complaining about journalists. It's like fishermen complaining about the sea. And of course, that's perfect, perfect here. Specialists may hope that without, with the internet, they can disintermediate journalists. They can disintermediate these enormous people who break embargoes, write incredibly crap stories about how, how everything gives you cancer. But without them, that medium is not going to work. Those messages are not going to get across. We do need the mass media. It is about explaining and defending a civil society, and it's about all of the elements we've seen so far. So I'd say to you, don't kill the messenger. Value the witness. Thanks very much. Okay. I'm going to take us down our list, and we've got to add to it, of course, Eduardo on equality. So let's call them in, in turn. I'm going to call first Henry to present on food. I promise you I'm going to bring down, I'm going to turn off the mic uh, after 60 seconds. Okay, um, food. Uh, I want to make the case for food. Uh, in its most simple way, if we don't eat, we die. And I do, I, I don't think there's anything that actually connects us more than that knowledge. Um, and I appreciate also that that's quite a trite, simplistic uh, notion to put in front of such an illustrious audience. But Kafka expanded on it when he actually said, as long as you've got food in your mouth, all of your questions are answered for the time being. And food takes on such a significance in everything that we do. The kitchen table, it's a very, very functional thing. We prepare our food on it. But we also invite people to sit around and, and share with us. And that's really the point that I want to leave you with. If you really, really want to make a friend with someone, go to their house and eat with them. Because the people that give you their food give you their heart. Eduardo, equality. Thank you. I think I've got the um, Marxist depressing feel-bad um, slot here. But um, the case I'm making is for a stronger degree of material equality as something that needs to better connect us. Um, put simply, material inequality is the most neglected area of connection that we could address on this list. I believe in good rewards for success, but the sheer scale of material inequality, which has grown significantly in this country and elsewhere, um, it's a growing gap that is uh, placing severe strain on everything else that is on this list. We know about the emergence of food banks. We know how short good housing is in supply. We know the terrible, terribly high price of not receiving um, uh, uh, the right sort of uh, education when it comes to our life chances. Um, it's challenging our abilities to deliver people's material needs which are uh, often neglected side of our human rights, and for them to make decisions about climate change, to choose carbon-neutral cheese rather than planet-destroying um, decisions they could make. And it affects their ability to connect to politics, business, culture, and the media to important things that change their life chances, such as legal representation, education, health, housing, um, it's, uh, it's something which has gone too far, it needs to be corrected, and I hope you'll vote for a greater degree of material equality. 
So the suggestion being that one of the things that connects people most is a sense of all being in it together in a, in a fair way. Okay, number 10, I'm going to call upon Harvey Goldsmith to speak on the power of music to connect. Okay, so the one thing that connects everybody um, and is the simplest form of emotion, of course, is music. has to be. It's the international ambassador. It's the global unifier. It links all generations. It makes us happy, sad, and angry. It covers off every single topic that's been brilliantly presented today, from culture to politics to even human rights, and of course food, because food is part of what we think about when we're writing music. <laughs> Music breaks down all barriers, it stood the test of time, it has a common bond. Music can deal with every topic discussed, as I've said, and most of all, of all the connectors that we've talked about today, it's the one thing that can spread like wildfire, and it's the one unifier that brings people together, because the one thing that people do like to do is share the emotion music. And as a consequence of that, I believe it's the best connector. Thank you. Uh, next, we have Peter York on fashion. This was conceived and imparted in a mood of most absolute frivolity and, and, and hangover. Uh, you will be astonished to hear. However, there is um, um, a grain of truth. Um, driven by one deeply held conviction of mine, namely that fashion is very imp profoundly important in human affairs and as a source of connection. And of course, I am going to cite and misquote that wild statement about only fools don't judge by appearances because it is profoundly true and very important. And because amazingly... <coughs> I don't just mean new directions in dynamic knitwear. <laughs> Beyond that, I think fashion applies to absolutely everything, any field of human endeavour, and does unite people sometimes in a rather malign way together as lemmings. There is fashion in all endeavour, and all endeavours are increasingly fashionized by media and related systems. Politics is wildly fashionized now. Great tranches of thought, great belief systems, wax and wane without war or revolution, because people pick up new ways of talking. We're ignoring the organisers and doing two very, very quickly. All right, Kate Mock, we had our hand. Where is Kate? Here, please. Loneliness, Kate, Loneliness, the, floor Kate. Is yours. the floor is yours. 60 seconds, absolutely bang down. Okay, uh, loneliness, uh, we're all lonely, but I want to suggest that that's something to celebrate, that that's great. Um, I have heard a lot of very glamorous people give presentations the last couple of days um, about ways in which they've connected with the world. But the conversations that I've had that have been fantastic have all started when someone's come up to me 
and at some level confessed to feeling a bit left out or feeling a bit lonely or wanting to have a conversation. We've heard lots about different ways we connect, fashion, food, these are things we connect over. But why do we want to connect? Because we don't want to be alone, but we should recognize that, we should celebrate that. When I go, when I go on Twitter, I see and I imagine thousands of people who look really lonely. I mean, they're sitting alone in their bedrooms, they're on their own. And why do they go onto the internet? Why do they join these things? Because of that fear, not to be alone. I know I have six seconds. It happens at all levels of society. My academic research is on the private poems of Elizabeth I, and they are about just how darn lonely she feels being a queen sitting on her own. So if we want to only connect, remember why we're doing it and celebrate that. Happy Schwartz. We're giving the last word to love, but very briefly. Very briefly, 30 seconds. I just want to talk about the quality of life. My vote in this debate goes to all of these people. I don't want to live in a world without any of these things. But I could, apart from food, for physical reasons. But if all of these things, politics and law and culture, were developed to their fullest potential in our life, but we knew we would live an entire existence without love, would we want to? All we need is love. Okay. Judge Kennedy. We're not going to do this by ballot because it will be too difficult now. So we've decided to do it by show of hands. So here's your chance. I'm just going to remind you of the list. The list is one, human rights and just law, Shami Chakrabarti arguing for the, the importance and the fundamental uh, nature of law um, and uh, freedom uh, at the basis of our existence and the need for that. Two, climate change and humanity, David Fenton reminding us of the threats to our world and the importance of that, uh, of, 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 of our existence here and the threat to it through climate change and that connecting us. Uh, three, politics, Douglas Carswell uh, speaking about the way in which we have to organise if we want anything to change and that has to be our way of connecting. Culture, Jude Kelly talking about our common humanity and the very basic things about giving expression to our humanity that is the thing that ultimately binds us. Scientific endeavour, Mark Henderson saying that our advance as a species has happened through curiosity and that that uh, endeavour is the thing that basically ultimately must connect us into the future. Education, Shai Rishev saying that in fact knowing and learning is the thing that connects us and connects us to the world and we have to make it available for, for yet more. Uh, Peter Bale saying we only know that because the mass media makes it possible for us to see what's happening in the world through bear, uh, brave people bearing witness and that, that ultimately lets us express our empathy for others. And then we had from the floor Henry saying basically it's about food, we're about to do it soon, sitting down and eating and sharing and over that talking and uh, uh, learning about our common uh, themes. Eduardo, speaking about equality, the ways in which we're divided by, by, by uh, um, impoverishment and uh, inequalities of income and how that can make it impossible to do all the other things that we need to do to be fully fulfilled human beings. Harvey, speaking about music, that basic thing that connects us across the world and which reaches into our inner intestines and into our hearts. Peter York, who says at the end of the day, it's how we look. We make so many judgments about our appearances and the way that we um, express ourselves through physical things around us. Kate Maltby, speaking about our aloneness and that connectedness is about trying to actually rise beyond that aloneness that every human being uh, ultimately must be aware of. And Habi Schwartz saying, it's all about love. You have to weigh it up. You can vote more than once. All right? 
We're going yeah. to no. We're going to give you. He's appalling maestro. We're going to give you. We've, we're making this up as we went on. We're going to give you three votes, and we'll see. We're going to do a frequency count, so you get three of those things to choose from. You don't have to choose one. You can choose three. Okay. We have, a, we have a host of winners. We have, we're going to do it from the bottom up. There's one, there is one, you're going to do it from the bottom up? Yes. Oh, go on then. The bottom up is that there's a joint third place. I love this. For love and, and food. food. <laughs> okay. So we're all, we're all going to go out there and exude we'll lo love, love for each we'll other love and food. eat. Okay. Um, the second was a tie between... Scientific endeavour and law and rights. Yeah. And the first was... By a mile. By, by a, a mile. By a country mile. Jude Kelly's Culture <laughs> and I would observe that this audience may be unrepresentative, but you're very wonderful. Thank you for being good sports. We, we thought you were terrific. Thank you. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.